I was able to investigate really one passage of Scripture to bring out the truths for us in the doctrine we're covering today. So if you want to open your Bible to John 6, verses 27 through 34, that is where we will be. As you turn there, we are in a series, as you know, on doctrine. And our doctrine today is entitled, The Spiritual Experience. That's what our faith and practice entitles it. And stated positively, this is addressing the interaction that Christians have with Christ on a day-to-day basis. The daily spiritual reality or relationship and experience that a believer should have with Christ. Now, stated slightly negatively, or polemically, if you will, is this statement itself asserts that this is what Quakers believe about what true communion is, or communion as in the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. The doctrine is stating essentially that where other Christians may emphasize wine and bread, we emphasize the spiritual experience. With that being said, I believe all Christians would argue, well, I would argue all or most Christians believe in the concept of this statement, as well as communion. So even those Christians who practice a physical communion do believe in what I'm about to lay out for for you in this spiritual experience. That's the doctrine side. The scripture that we'll be looking at, just to give you a little context, Jesus has just fed a large crowd, 5,000 plus men, or plus women and children. And in fact, after that event, where this is where the crowd arises to try and take Jesus and make him their king by force. We actually looked at that verse a little bit last week. And Jesus escapes the crowd's wishes, and the twelve, by their lonesome, they get in a boat, they start going across the sea, And then Jesus walks out on the water to greet them. The next day, Jesus and the twelve are in Capernaum, and the crowd that Jesus fed and and wanted to make Jesus their king, they come looking for him, and then Jesus begins this long teaching about bread and working for food that does not perish. And they came looking for more freebies. So that's the thrust behind our text today. I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of God if you're able to stand, and let's Read John chapter 6, verses 27 through 35. Jesus speaking says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Father, you're speaking here in such primitive language, talking about simple bodily needs. And so what that means for us is the way we think we need bread and water, that's the way, realistically, how much we should hunger and thirst after you. Father, there is a spiritual craving that you've designed us with that only you can feel. And so whenever we are in straits of emptiness or we're confused or in despair because we are starving ourselves spiritually, in order to exist as we should, we need to be hungering and thirsting and then partaking in you. So help us, Father, as we study this passage together and think about our doctrine that Father, you would put that hunger and thirst front and center in our lives to where we can no longer ignore it. That we will wake up and just as we know we need to eat, we also know we need to meet with you. Help us, Father. We pray that you would be the one speaking and not I. That you would be speaking to us. That we would all have ready and willing hearts to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I wonder if the reality, the simple reality that you and I have access to meet with Jesus in a very real way, does that ever hit you? Does that gravity ever rest on you? I don't know about you, so here's where I'm at. Why am I not taking more and more advantage of this in my life? Apparently I'd rather mindlessly look through news articles or scroll through Facebook and lament about the world's problems instead of meeting one-on-one with the ruler of the world who can fix them. Apparently TV shows are much more exciting than communicating with Jesus. You and I have access, very real access to God. All we have to do is ask. If I opened up a mailbox and had a signed letter with the return address to heaven, God wrote it to me. I'd tear that letter open so fast and read it. I have a Bible, a letter from God. If Jesus of Nazareth was bunking in my house on the couch, I'd wake up early in the morning, make him some coffee, and have a chat with him. If while I settled down to watch some TV and unwind and Jesus was sitting in the lazy chair, I'd probably ask if he had anything he wanted to talk about. See if he wanted to share with me about. If he had a better idea with what to do with that evening. If Jesus was keeping up with the news as much as I was, because he's sitting next to me as I scroll through my phone, I'd ask his opinion on every single news article. I'd ask how he thought things might end, because he might know. If Jesus was sitting in the pews this morning, I would ask him to preach, and I'd ask his insights on all the passages, and I'd ask him to pray during the prayer time. See, the thing is, is whether it's here or now, though, or even back when Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth in flesh and blood before he gave himself, Jesus always seems to be misunderstood. 
Jesus always seems to be put in a box. Jesus always seems to be wanted for other reasons, but not just simply wanted because he's come to be who he is for us, Emmanuel, God with us. Our ninth doctrine touches on what we entitle the spiritual experience. The statement essentially says three things. First, it's a personal thing. Secondly, it states that the Holy Spirit accomplishes it. And then lastly, it's done by faith. It's personal, the Holy Spirit accomplishes it, and it's done by faith. Here's the statement for you. We believe that we may experience Christ directly and immediately without the necessity of priestly or ceremonial intervention, and that this experience is available to every person. It's personal. Secondly, the spiritual life is nourished by the Holy Spirit who teaches and guides us both individually and corporately according to his commandments. It's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, for friends, the supper of the Lord is an inward feeding on Christ by faith in response to his broken body and shed blood. It's accomplished it's by faith. It's a personal thing. It's about me and Jesus, a direct line of communication. It's the Holy Spirit accomplishing it, namely Jesus in us. Let's not forget that the Holy Spirit is God, the same Spirit of Jesus the same Spirit of God. It's God, it's Christ, the Spirit inside of us. And as we involve ourselves in this spiritual reality, by means of faith or belief or trusting in God, so we're going to see all this as a result of our passage, because now it's going to be weird for you. I'm going to start preaching, and you'll think that I've changed subjects. It's because I have. But I will come back to this subject and I'll connect it and it will hopefully make sense to you. That's what I'm aiming for, but I'm not always the best sharpshooter. So our passage really proposes a lot of questions in John 6. And I've broken up our study into four parts. What kind of food? What kind of work? What kind of sign and what kind of bread? What kind of food, work, sign, bread? And the first verse in our passage is a discussion about what kind of food. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is saying this to the crowd who just had their fill of loaves. And he suspects that they've searched Jesus out, yes, because they, they're they wowed that he took a little kid's sack lunch and he fed 5,000 plus people with it. Miracles, free food, do it again, Jesus. But Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes. The idea of work here can have behind it a, of one committing to or searching for or examining. So Jesus is saying, don't pour your energy here. Into what? Into food that perishes. Do you work for food that perishes? I'm reminded of what God says through Isaiah in Isaiah 55.2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that does which not satisfy? Have you been here? 
There's an emptiness in life. I think I'll take up a hobby or an activity that can occupy my time and take my money. Maybe if I really get really good at that hobby or that activity, I'll, I'll feel fulfilled. Or I, I need this cause. It's a cause I have to fight for to stay busy with and be distracted by because if I don't have this cause or if I'm not fighting for this, then I will be confronted with the emptiness that I know that lingers. I need to be distracted. But it's like you went to the grocery market for bed and for meat for an essential food and right before buying the bread you said, I think I'll just buy lots of popcorn. <laughs> Here, take my money. And it leaves you hungry. I remember whenever I was a teenager, 17 or so, discerning this call into ministry and and one of the factors that solidified my calling was this idea that I knew, I just knew, if I didn't give my life's work to ministry within the church in this manner, I would feel unsatisfied and unsettled. I would be in another job dealing with bouts of feeling disobedient. I would deal with seasons of where I just knew I'd have this heaviness over me, this feeling of knowing that I'm not where I should be. And so God asks, why do you labor for that which does not satisfy some of you are lucky and you like your jobs or if you retired you liked your jobs some of you are lucky and like my dad who didn't work the mail route because he loved moving paper from building to mailboxes but he liked working because it provided for his family and he found satisfaction in providing for his family but I wonder if others of you if you feel like I described how I thought I'd feel if I didn't join the ministry. I wonder if you feel like there is no satisfaction in your day-to-day duties. Something is always missing. Something is out of reach. Something is not always as it should, and you're unsatisfied, and you're unsettled. I wonder if the crowd felt that around Jesus. And like a dog chasing cars, Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, and it's like a dog caught a car. Oh boy, this is new. Look at this. Look at this guy. He can do miracles. He can make banquets out of a Happy Meal. Let's search for him. Gimmicks. Something new. And so the dogs chase this car, this one car, all the way to Capernaum, and Jesus can sense it in their longing eyes. They, they came off the excitement of cheap entertainment, and so Jesus invites them in. Do not work for the food that perishes, right? Don't look for the cheap entertainment. Don't look for the distractions from the empty void you fill. Don't take up a cause just to drain your time and money and distract you from the real problem. Rather, but work for the food that endures to the eternal life to which the Son of Man will give you. Again, let's remember that verb that Jesus is contrasting here. The point is is that Jesus wants his hearers to work for the food that endures to eternal life, to commit to, to search for, to examine, to pour your life's energy here, the food that endures to eternal life. Don't be one-dimensional about this word eternal. More than being a quantity on the word life, it's also a quality. Quantity, eternal, infinity, infinity, life after death. But also quality, it's timeless, it's of the ages, 
And it says, as Jesus would say in John 10, life abundant. A life to be had now. And Jesus is saying, that's worth working for. That's worth laboring over. And it can be had. See, you don't need causes and distractions to numb you from the emptiness. You don't need to fake like everything's okay just to avoid the fact that you're paying for popcorn instead of bread and working for something that does not satisfy. But rather, for those who really want it, it can be had. And here's the awesome paradox. Jesus has been saying, work for But here's how it is had, this satisfying life, this food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Hear that? It reminds me of how Jesus describes the kingdom of God in Matthew 13, 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. But then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. See, there is some work that the man is doing. Granted, it's more like busy work. Nevertheless, his ultimate work is not for something that he earns. He found it. He found it in the field, but he had to sell all that he had to purchase that field. How is he willing to do that? I don't even own my house, but what if I came home one day and said to Christy, I'm selling the cars, I'm selling the electronics, the computers, I'm selling everything. What? For a field over there. Because the housing market's so up, it's very pricey. (laughs) How could I do that so freely? Two reasons. The treasure in the field is worth it. And it's so worth it that it moves me to joy. This man in joy goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Whenever you labor for the food that endures to eternal, abundant life, it will be a joyous, Labor. Work that you want to do because that treasure in the field is worth it. What kind of food is this? Food that endures to eternal life. Food that the Son of Man gives. And how does Jesus just freely state this? How does Jesus penetrate to the hearts of those following him, not in the believing sense but the crowd? Who gives Jesus the authority to say this? To say, A, you're working for cruddy food. And B, work for soul-satisfying food that I can give. Why can Jesus give? For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Think of a nobleman's seal, the, the wax circle on the envelope, official mail, registering, stating, authenticating. Jesus is making the claim, I am speaking on behalf of God directly. I can judge like this, I can make statements like this, because I am sent from God. Jesus is going to make this claim a little bit more clearer later in the passage. So again, though, Jesus has also been talking about work. Don't work for this, work for this. But it's work for ultimately a gift, instead of an earning. What kind of work is this? That's our next point in the passage. We talked about what kind of food... Don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures through everlasting life. But now we're going to see an answer to what kind of work. Verse 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? 
Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now we need to understand the possessives here. I think the NIV makes it clear for us in verse 28. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? So, if, if they want to work for the food that endures to eternal life, how can they work for that? Some of you, this is the bothersome question. You wouldn't word it this way, but it seems like everything you pour your life into, you just, you always come up empty. Depressed, sad, more tragedy, more defeat, and, and so then you start to think, do I need a new job? I need a new location, that's it. Has this new hobby that I've been enjoying suddenly lost its enjoyment? What's the deal? And so people ask, okay, just give us the right job then, Jesus. Just give us the right job. But this is the first misunderstanding that these people will make. There's going to be three misunderstandings they make. Because it's not about the work. It's, it's not, hey, you're ranching and farming, but I want you to be preaching. Stocking, testing, potatoes. It's not, you're going to a Protestant church reading the wrong Bible, I want you to go to a Catholic church and read the right Bible. In fact, it ends up not being about the work at all. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now this word, believe in Greek, is very loaded. It has packed into its meaning lots of things. Believe, trust, rely upon, faith, repentance. It's total dependence. In him, Jesus, whom God has sent. That is the work that God wants. It's simple, but it's also profound. It's simple that it's not on me to be saved. It's not on you to be saved. It's not on us to search and search and search, and, and finally, there's the field with treasure in it. Jesus is presenting it. He's handing it to us. It's profound in that how hard is it really for you to fully rely upon him? We love to trust in our own efforts, don't we? There is a sense within humanity that, 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 that does take pride in a job well done, which can be a good thing, a good motivator. But then sometimes that seems to translate over into religious self-righteousness. We want to be the one who discovers the right Bible, the right church, the right beliefs, the right works to impress God. And it's awfully humbling to realize what Jesus is saying here. The only thing that will please God is for you to fully rely on me. That's humbling because it means we can't impress God. We can't rely on ourselves. What's more is that word believe is in the present tense. It's a daily thing. Can I be the first to admit that as a Christian, I often wrestle here. It can be easy for us to say, oh yeah, I put my trust in Jesus a long time ago. You want to see my born again days? But friend, just like you and I have to open the fridge every day for the food that perishes, let us also realize that we have to come to God every day for the food that sustains eternal life. But beyond this work and this belief, here's the misunderstanding that the people have. Again, it's not about the work. It's about the object. It's about the appropriate. It's not about the appropriate type of work. It is about the appropriate object. 
If you're interested in peace and provision, and then you make that your aim, you're going to miss out on it. If you're interested in not feeling empty, but feeling full in life, and that interest alone, though, is not going to be an anchor sturdy enough for your soul. The goal here has to be God. Now, as I've said this before, doctrine seems to connect to each other, and I think about human redemption. What are you and I made for? We open up the Bible again, we find a perfect world where perfect people live in it without sin, and it's a world where people and God have a perfect relationship. And the whole point of the necessity of needing redemption is this, that you and I are brought back into that life-giving relationship, God and us. That's the goal. And to bring that goal, belief in Jesus, that's the kind of work that God is looking for. To bring about the kind of food that nourishes the soul. But then we come back to this point that was made briefly in verse 27, and I ask you, how can Jesus even say these things? These are some weighty claims that the Son of Man can give you the food that endures through eternal life. How so? By believing in me. What kind of authority does Jesus have? How can he say these things? So we come to our third point, and that is, what kind of sign does Jesus give to authenticate his authority? Let's read verses 30-32 together. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, the book of John is noted for his seven signs. There are seven signs throughout the book to signify sign, signify who Jesus is. But then John ends saying, he ends the very last verse in his book, Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. Now my point is this. I imagine at this point the people that, that Jesus is talking to in our passage have to be overlooking many things if they're asking for a sign. The least of which is the reason they, they showed up looking for Jesus in the first place, right? He just fed 5,000 people with a Happy Meal. Or it could be like many people today with other proofs of God's existence, that they're diminishing that sign. Well, that's one thing, Jesus, but Moses provided manna out of the sky. He didn't have any food to start with. Or they could be prodding Jesus. Moses did it continually for many days. You just fed us once, and now you're done. You're not as high and mighty as you say you are. You're not as good as Moses. You're just the one who wonder Jesus. And they reveal another misunderstanding that kind of actually goes back to the first. So the first misunderstanding was that it's, it's, it's not about the work. It's really about the goal, Jesus. The second misunderstanding is that they think Moses provided the manna, but really, who provided the manna? Verse 32, Jesus then said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. It's the same misunderstanding. We want to... To work to get our eternal life, what do we do? Believe in God, trust God, let God give it to you, set your sights on God. 
We want to believe you, Rabbi, so do a sign like Moses did signs. Provide for us like Moses provided. God provided through Moses. It was never about Moses giving the manna. It was about God giving manna, and now God is giving you true bread. Now this word, true, one dictionary about this Greek word says this, and it, I picked this definition because I knew it would confuse you, <laughs> that it connects a visible fact to an underlying reality. Now let me say that again. A visible fact to an underlying reality. So now I have an example for you. Because Jesus uses this word true a few times in John. He, he seems to use it often when he's revealing that he's filling out what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, like he, like he actually is here. For example, in John 15, Jesus says what? I am the true vine. The Old Testament, the vineyard, is often Israel. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of Israel. I am what Israel was pointing to, what Israel was supposed to be on paper. I am. That's the point. There's all this reality in the background. There's this history, this foundation. All these symbols in the Old Testament building and building, and it builds up into this visible reality of who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, I am the true bread. What does he mean by this? And that's actually the last question that our text answers today. It says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now, we looked at these questions, right? What kind of food are we talking about? Food that endures to eternal life. What kind of work are we talking about? Work or pouring our energy into belief in Jesus. What kind of sign does Jesus give us? Just as God provided bread through Moses, so God provides true bread through Jesus. So lastly, what is this true bread? And when Jesus explains, we come to yet another misunderstanding on behalf of the people. Do you remember the misunderstandings? The first misunderstanding, it's not about the work. It's about the goal of our work, God. The second misunderstanding, it's not about Moses who brought the sign. It's about God who brought the sign through Moses and is bringing it now. The answer to both misunderstandings is it's about God. I'll give you a guess as to what the third answer might be. Well, actually, the third misunderstanding is kind of a misunderstanding shared in the book of John. So back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus thinks Jesus is talking about a physical rebirth. Right? Jesus says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. How can a man enter the womb again? It's, just, it's not physically possible, God. Jesus. John chapter 4, Jesus talking about a living water that never runs out. What does the Samaritan woman say? I'll take some. Where is this well? Where can I draw this water? These were things that they took literally. Jesus says he's not talking about a physical rebirth. He's talking about a, a rebirth of the soul that sees the kingdom of God and lives in communion with them and lives empowered by his spirit. He's not talking about the kind of water that people drink. He's talking about a water for the soul, living water that quenches the thirst the soul has. And that's kind of the reality that Jesus is speaking of here for the bread 
of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you see how Jesus has stretched the Old Testament reality to great lengths? See, just as Jesus is the true vine, the fulfillment of Israel, so Jesus is not only bringing bread down from heaven to the Israelites, he's not bringing bread anymore, he's bringing himself. That's a little bit better. He's not bringing it just to the Israelites to give sustenance to them. He's bringing life to the world. It's kind of just stretched and exploded everything there. So we come to that third misunderstanding in the book of John about physical and spiritual realities. The third misunderstanding of this crowd today, verse 34 again. Sir, give us this bread always, but it's not about the bread. It's not about the work. It's not about Moses, and it's not about the bread. It's about God. It's about God in the flesh in Jesus. The work that God accepts is belief in Jesus before their eyes. And the sign that God gives is Jesus before their eyes. And the bread that comes down from heaven is Jesus before their eyes. Indeed, Jesus would clarify that he's talking about himself. For I have come down from heaven. It says that in verse 38. Now here's what you're asking. Because here's what I was asking. I thought this was about a doctrine called spiritual experience, Kevin. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think the problem that these people make is the problem that many people make. It's not about symbols. It's about the reality. It's not about a physical piece of bread. It's about he who is the bread and gives life. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you hear how Jesus leans into the spiritual experience, the spiritual reality here? He's not talking about physical bread, physical drink, but whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and furthermore believes in me shall never thirst. In the Old Testament, especially whenever you read in the Law in Leviticus, and I know you read those every day, they're like the Psalms for you, and Leviticus are all these rituals and sacrifices, and I know there's a lot of heavy language, but once you start reading them, you understand something. A lot of them are just thanksgiving over and over and over again. They're just feasts with the priests. And after all the ritualistic slaughtering of the animals, put the blood there and these parts over there, the priests and worshippers would be sitting down to eat together. And these sacrifices, a lot of them were thanksgiving offerings or sin offerings or guilt and repentance and to seek forgiveness or to seek to praise God. You'd have all these different feasts. I mean, part of me wants to go back to that just so we eat a lot more. But, <laughs> but Jesus, in this passage, has taken their greatest prophet, Moses. He's taken some of their greatest symbols, manna, Miracle provision from heaven. And he's taken their whole system, namely eating and worship, and Jesus is saying, come to me to find life. We believe that we may experience Christ directly and immediately without the necessity of priestly or ceremonial intervention and that this experience is available to every person. Well, how so? The last part of our statement, for friends, the supper of the Lord is an inward feeding on Christ by faith in response to his broken body and shed blood. Jesus says the work of God is this. Believe in the one he sent. And then he says, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
I believe this, that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, Quakers historically are not misunderstanding as these people did here. It's not about the symbols, it's about Christ. It's about the goal. And we feast on Christ, we come to Christ, we want to experience Him directly. Because of the middle part of our statement, the spiritual life is nourished by the Holy Spirit who teaches and guides us both individually and corporately according to his commandments. Nourish, quenching thirst, fulfilling hunger, satisfying the unfulfillment. Popcorn doesn't go too far. Jesus offers bread. So what does this mean? Do you feel empty? Unsatisfied, spiritually hungry, your old habits just aren't doing it for you anymore. Are you still watching TV shows, and even though they might not, they might be new and they've never aired, but they feel like reruns, because <laughs> it's not fulfilling you anymore. Jesus is the bread of life, and whoever comes to him will never hunger, and whoever believes in him will never thirst. So I encourage you, don't let anything get in the way. It doesn't need to. Rather, come to Him and Him alone and you will find rest for your souls. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, the early Quakers existed in a time when the Catholic Church was saying, you need to take our communion the Anglican Church was saying, no, you need to take our communion. And a bunch of Christians said, no, we just want to take Christ. We want to come to Christ because the elements are not about the elements. The symbols are not about the symbols. The symbols are about Christ. The elements are about Christ. Father, we need to feast on you not only every Sunday during a church service or not just once a quarter. We need to feast on you daily. Just as we open up our fridge for the food that perishes, let us open up our Bibles, let us open up our hearts and our spirits and our times of prayer with you to work for the food that doesn't perish but gives everlasting life. Father, many of us, even if we're Christians, why are we living lives that feel empty and unsatisfied and unfulfilled? could be that we are in a state of disobedience. Even if that's the case... The answer is still the same. We need to meet with you. We need to meet with you to find fulfillment and nourishment for our souls. We need to meet with you and find what you wish to say about our lives and where you want us to be more obedient. Not because you need it, but because we need it. Because this is what you made us for. You're not an angry, tyrannical God trying to harass us to get us to do what you want us to do. You're a loving creator, knowing what we're made for, trying to help us to not just survive, but to thrive, to give us fulfillment and satisfaction in the soul. Father, thank you for this. Thank you that you made us this for this. Thank you that you redeemed us so we can have it. Father, may we live this truth out this week and the weeks to come. May we share this truth with others. We love you and we thank you and we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.